Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. back to the direct-to-video connoisseur uh, back here again this is Matt and uh, welcoming back a very special guest here Mitch Lovell of the video vacuum w welcome back Mitch thank you yeah funniest thing when when um when I emailed you to see if you wanted to uh, to to come back on the podcast like literally in that that short period of time between when I emailed you to see if you wanted to come on and you emailed back and said you were you were up for it somebody on Twitter actually said hey are you gonna have Mitch on in the near future and so I was like well I'm not going to say anything yet because I figured I'd see you and then uh, we'd go from there. Supply and demand. <laughs> exactly. It worked out <laughs> perfect. And, and I have to say because, you know, whenever I'm, I, I invite someone to come on the podcast, I always give a couple of, you know, possible topics. And I was really excited that you chose this topic uh, for, for us to discuss today. So I'm, I'm really glad that you this, – this was the one that you wanted to do. Well, yeah. I mean it's, it's a seasonal aspect of it that was uh, appealed to me. And also the, the film itself is – uh, I I hesitate to call movies now so bad they're good. I just call them a Mitch movie. If it's if it's something that I would watch, I just call it a Mitch movie and put it in my queue. And uh, this uh, kind of checked all the boxes. All right, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I, for a second, it was, it, it's interesting. When I first saw it on on IMDb, I almost thought it had like kind of a Laugh Olympics quality to it. You know, it was like Hanna Barbera, <laughs> like all the the characters that come out. But I realized there aren't as many people in this um, as, as I initially thought. But still, there are plenty. You know, there's enough for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely uh, like if if the Expendables uh, of the Expendables went on a, a holiday uh, adventure and forgot to actually kickbox people <laughs> right right exactly so so just to give people an idea we're we're talking about santa's summer house here which is a, a film from 2012 um directed by david dakota which um people probably know now as the guy who does all those the wrong movies um on on lifetime uh but he got his start with kind of more racier fare uh, in, in the 1990s uh, he, he's almost like the the eric roberts of directors i think uh, in terms of his output and how many films he gets out in a year it, that, that's a very good call because i mean he seems like a guy who doesn't say no very much right 
And, uh, you know, my unofficial motto at the Video Vacuum's always been quantity over quality. And he definitely, like I say, he checks that box with spades. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think when, when, when you watch enough of these, you almost get to appreciate the way that guys like him or, you know, the directors like him um, ply their craft um, to make these kind of movies. Well, I mean, they talk about alter theory being a, a myth, and then you see something like D.B. Cooper versus Bigfoot, and you're like, okay, well, that, that Dakota is very much a, an alter because only one person in this whole world could probably have made that movie, and that's him. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now, the film that we're talking about here, Santa's Summer House, it stars, um, I, I guess we could say four um, uh, DTV stars. I mean, the two biggest ones, I think, are Gary Daniels and Cynthia Rothrock. Um, those are kind of your, your top notch. And then we've got Daniel Bernhard and then Kathy Long, who uh, I, know, I know she was in Nights. That's, that's the only thing I could think of was that the, the Albert Pyun film Nights, which also had Gary Daniels in it as well. Yeah, uh, she had uh, done, I think, a lot of stunt work as well. But she definitely had you know, enough credentials to to kind of hang with, with the four of those. And, and we can't forget Chris Mitchum, who goes back a little bit further. Um, not quite in that same school, but definitely of that same ilk of just like somebody that would just grind out these B-movies, you know, uh, with really kind of... I, I wouldn't say he had, you know, those guys have, uh, you know, low standards. They just, I, I think they just like the work and... Yeah, for them, it must have been a, a good opportunity to get together and make a movie when they're not kickboxing somebody for 90 minutes. You know, they can just kind of chill, not worry about fight choreography and just kind of more or less be themselves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the kind of funny things about Chris Mitchum is now seeing him older. Uh, he looks like a cross between his dad, uh, Robert Mitchum, and Rudger Hauer. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> but just to give a basic plot synopsis of this, so our our, our characters um, are are in a uh, uh, kind of a, a van um, headed to a resort somewhere, and what we think is somewhere between, I guess, I guess it's kind of closer to Northern California, and there the van driver somehow ends up in a fog and he gets lost so he goes to this beautiful mansion um with a nice view and everything and they are welcomed by none other than cynthia rothrock who plays a woman named nana um and she comes out with some really nice cookies and tells the crew that hey you know you're lost you can't make it to your resort if you're, you'd like you can stay with us for a little bit and um turned out that that resort was double booked so they stay at the resort only to find out that um Cynthia Rothrock's husband in the movie, played by Christopher Mitchum, you know, playing a character named Pop, who we think might have some ulterior motives. We discover that he's actually Santa, and he has brought each of these people here because he wants to sort of, I guess, give them Christmas wishes that they never quite got. They're a little bit more, um, they're not necessarily a certain toy or a, uh, a, some kind of item of some sort. It's more of like a, a, a Christmas wish that's a little bit beyond that. Um, and so he tries to give them each their wishes. Of course, they're a little bit skeptical until, um, you know, he's able to prove that he's Santa. And then, you know, they, they all are, are much happier at the end there. Yeah, it's definitely the, the cliched, uh, you know, workaholic father uh, spending more time with his kids kind of scenario. The uh, kind of squabbling sisters putting their uh, feud aside for the holiday. And then, well, Daniel Bernhardt's 
I think, uh, problem was just not to be such a creep all the time. I, <laughs> I didn't quite catch what his uh, magical wish was, but... Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess we, we find out at some point that he's really jaded because, um, I guess, because his parents divorced and... And he was he was he became he was like kind of I guess he like would escape into sci-fiism, but yeah, I think the Daniel Bernhardt character is kind of an old adage that I've noticed with movies. It's like, you know, we always say that really good, uh, you know, people that are like really nice play really great baddies, but playing a heel or a jerk, you know, just kind of like a jerk as opposed to an actual baddie, is a little bit more difficult, I think, for people. And he uh, plays a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> And it, you know, I believe him in, uh, you know, the, the Bloodsport movies where he's taken over for Van Damme. And I believe him in Future War where he's like a kickboxer from the future, but as a, a rocket scientist. Uh, yeah, that was kind of the first sign that we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and what's great is he doesn't do anything rocket science-y at all throughout the film. Well, no. He makes that half-assed drone out of... Uh, duct tape and toothpicks or something at the end and I guess that's supposed to be him getting back into his childhood uh, enthusiasm or whatever but yeah it was uh, a little bit off the mark in in terms of uh, what he could portray believably I think right exactly now now, now Mitch what were your thoughts overall on this movie Uh, well I yeah I'm gonna start with the positive because tis the season (laughs) Right. <laughs> uh, I don't want to put Cole in everybody's stocking just yet, but you know, like I said, like I, I think all these guys, like I said, they, they, they're especially like Rothrock and Daniels. I, I think beyond like being in movies, they do a lot of, uh, you know, traveling on the circuit of the martial arts circuits, doing demonstrations, uh, and going to conventions. And I, I think they're that community is pretty tight knit. And I think all these guys kind of see each other in circumstances where they have to, you know, get in a gi, fight, train, choreography. And like I said, I think this, you know, it, it's a vacation movie. I think it was a little bit of a vacation for them because, it, I mean, it looks like, you know, the van that picked them up from the hotel <laughs> and they just like filmed that, you know, them arriving on set. So, I mean, I, I think they were, you know, except for, for Bernhardt, who, I mean, was... I, laughable. I, I don't think anybody phoned in it. I think actually Rothrock was pretty well cast as Mrs. Claus because she always has that bubbly, enthusiastic demeanor to her. So I think that was good. And, and Chris Mitchum, I mean, I believed he was Santa Claus without the beard, you know, the ho ho hoes. And yeah, I never thought I would say that, but you know, it was pretty, pretty good casting for what, you know, the obvious budget was. But, uh, now that I got that out of the way, yeah, this was a tough sit. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the biggest thing. I mean, I think the, the, the roughest part for me, and I don't know how you feel about this, but there's a scene where they're playing croquet, and <laughs> you're literally seeing the same scenes over and over again, and there's a sense there that, like, maybe something happened where they made this movie, and maybe they had to make it for TV, and somebody said to Dakota something along the lines of, like, um, something along the lines of, like, Listen, we need them. We need about ten more minutes, or something like that. And he's like, "Where am I going to get ten more minutes? These these people have probably all flown off to their old, you know, their other places or whatever." And so we're just like, "Okay, let me just keep adding in more croquet footage." And um, uh, it, that one really hurt because I'm just like, "Okay, end scene, 
end scene yeah. and then it yeah. just wasn't ending. I mean, uh, I mean, in on Mystery Science Theater, they talk about rock climbing on uh, <laughs> Lost Continent. They talk about the sandstorm scene in uh, Hercules uh, against the Moon Men. The croquet game is ri- right up there with those two uh, cinematic, just kind of just like grinding to a halt the whole movie. And you're just, you know, in, in most of these, you know, most movies, even, you know, sports movies, yeah, but not, you know, any movie that has a sports scene is usually edited. There's a montage. There's at least, you know, a, a semblance of what's going on. This was like somebody's home movie of somebody else's family playing croquet. And there's no really kind of, you, you're just kind of thrown into it. And like the sappy music is going like blaring in the background. And there's like all these near misses, and we're some, you know, they 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 hit the wrong ball, or they hit, accidentally hit the guy's foot, and it's all, and you're just like, what am I, what am I watching? Like this is, even if they had like you know Howard Cosell or somebody doing play by play, you still couldn't make any sense out of what was going on. I mean, it's like ten minutes, nonstop. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think, yeah, rock climbing is a really great analogy for this because the thing about rock climbing that made it so bad in uh, in Lost Continent is that you never knew where they were in relation to anything else. And that's the same thing with this game is that you, you none of it really, you, you didn't know who was winning, who was losing, like what the shots meant, what the purpose was. It was just like, let's shoot, let's laugh, and then, you know, recycle. And I mean, when you're seeing the same scene again, too, you're like, okay, he just did this two minutes ago. Now you're showing him how to do this this shot again um yeah how does it work and yeah it felt like boy you know like somebody must have said like your movie can't be that short which that's one thing i think with with some of these these directors who don't do made for tv as much or they aren't used to you know you could put out a 76 minute movie and it wouldn't be a problem but for for tv you can't do that right and you know dakota definitely comes from that school you know full moon movies empire movies where you know 76 minutes is you know you're still pushing your luck on some of those movies and this without any kickboxing without any uh you know kind of action element like like that was the action sequence and it's probably the lowest of all their careers of just and you know bless their heart they you know it they they're only as good as what they they're given right a lot of those guys if you've seen any of their movies if, if they're paired with a good co-star or they're paired with the right director a sturdy script they can do pretty well but if they're not the kind of guys that can take a lousy script and make it better uh and when that scene definitely had no script so right right and one thing i did notice i don't know if you caught this as well but um every once in a while when when rothrock would jump um and her dress would go up a bit you could see the brace that she had on her leg um which i think was maybe a little bit telling about what you were saying about how um you know the stars in this movie were probably happy to not have to do any choreographed fight scenes like you got to see the toll that it's taken on their their careers to do some of these movies especially rothrock who did a lot in in, in hong kong Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I didn't catch the, the brace, but I, I know that, you know, lately here, I mean, even Bernhardt's been, you know, and D- Daniels, they're making movies at a clip that, you know, is probably even more than their heyday. 
Yeah. And I mean, a lot of them are smaller roles now, but you know, I, I can't imagine this movie being any more than five to seven days long in terms of shooting. Yeah. So for them to say, Hey, look, you're, you know, you're going to have a week long stay at a, at, at a nice little uh, summer resort, you know, beachside, you know, they're like, yeah, I'll cash that check. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of them. I'm pretty sure Rothrock is based in in L.A., and and I have a feeling a lot of them are based there. So the fact that Dakota and and the production are, are coming in and saying we're shooting this at a at a mansion in Malibu as opposed to like you've got to go to Canada or you've got to go to Thailand, I imagine that probably helps as well. I mean, they might even be able to go home um, after shooting during the day. Yeah, I mean, it's and it, that kind of is a, a testament to to Dakota's, uh, you know, just ability to churn these things out i mean because he uses the same house in so many of those movies because you have to wonder because you know they make a lot of uh business about the house being santa's summer home and you know it's the off season i was like is he renting that out to like the the frat boys from the 1313 series uh you know when he's up north or you know or is is the talking cat living there when he's not there right Exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was one thing I was wondering, because, you know, I the first one of these that I watched that had, you know, one of these auteur directors was um my wife and I watched, I think it was called Christmas in Palm Springs with Fred Olin Ray. And you could kind of see some of the touches that that, you know, that they would put in there, or you know, some of some of their old style. And it got me thinking, I was like, boy, it makes a lot of sense to get someone like a Dakota or a, um, a Fred Olin Ray to do these kind of movies, because, you know, you don't have to go to Canada, they, they know how to get it under budget locally in, in LA or something like that. But also, they're used to spitting things out in short order. And I imagine it's probably easier to get people you know um you know not not huge names but but names enough to to get them on board if they're only going to be shooting for a short period of time and guys like uh ray and jim lenorski they already have their kind of stable uh b-movie uh actors that they can call at the moment's notice and get in there um and, and what's kind of you know like going back to what you said about their ability to churn these out you know i always see like lenorski and ray dakota even like uh, you know, guys like Tibor Takis, who went from uh, making The Gate to sci-fi movies to these Christmas movies, they, they're they almost like carpetbaggers in a sense that where, wherever there's a need in the market, they, they exploit it. And, you know, early days uh, was the direct-to-video market, so they're making, you know, B-horror movies. And then in the 90s, it's... Uh, the cable market so they're making these erotic thrillers or skinamax movies and then now you know there's a you know everything's content now it's not really you know film or movies anywhere it's just content and these guys there's a hole in the uh in the uh, uh hallmark knockoff market and these guys can come in and they can knock these things out and you know everybody's happy yeah, you you bring up an interesting point because um you know my wife and I were looking to kind of load up our queue with some of these 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 holiday movies because we just get a kick out of watching them, and she wanted some more from like the two thousands period you know the first decade of the two thousands as opposed to more recent ones, and when you go to Hallmark you really if you go through the guide you know the, the cable guide or whatever you really can't find anything more recent than like twenty sixteen, and and a lot of them have like twenty nineteen or twenty twenty for the dates on them so. 
I think it's also a matter of like they want to make sure they're pumping out new movies and 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 having new content because they flood the market with so many Christmas movies. I mean, like, I think Hallmark does only Christmas movies from like November on or or something like that. And and so it's like, yeah, this market, this this piece opened up in the market, and and it was. I, I always thought it was really cool that that these guys that you know that we we were used to seeing in the '90s doing a completely different kind of movie were were, were filling the void for them. Yeah, and I think it, it's probably nostalgia, but, you know, I, I mean, because, I mean, let's face it, there's only one sortie babes in the slam ball ball around. There will never, that's a one of a kind movie, and to expect, you know, Dakota to come out of the gate every time with a movie like that, you know, it, it's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's that, that nostalgic part of me. It's like, ah, why can't you just do like rubbery monster movies and girls in uh, hot tubs and, you know, stuff like that? And then, but what you see is like, you know, he, I think he's really in his element when he's doing like the 1313 movies. And, you know, because I, I and that's a market that's really not being tapped either is the, the gay theme horror movie. I mean, you know, the, that's the, the horror community is filled with, uh, you, you know, gay viewers that, that, that want to see, uh, you know, it, I. It, they wanted to see something kind of geared towards them. And it's, it's kind of refreshing because even, you know, as, you know, someone, uh, you know, just a regular viewer, it, it lures you in because if you're familiar with uh, Dakota's shooting style, it's like this, you know, this whole world, because you're used to like in the 80s, it was like Linnea Quigley. Yeah. Michelle Bauer, you know, Brink Stevens, they're they're the ones in the shower. Now that's like these like uh, you know, chiseled, you know, football player kind of guys. And it, it, it's an interesting way to flip the script, I think, to kind of make it accessible to everybody, really. Yeah, and that's one thing I think about Dakota that, that it, it seems like from what I've been able to gather from him, I mean his his picture on IMDB, his his profile picture is his his no hate picture. Um, so I get the sense, and, and I mean, one of the things he's done really well, I think, is he's really pushed um, Vivica A. Fox in in those, especially in those wrong movies. And she, I mean, she and the two of them have really great chemistry. Uh, she seems to really do well in his movies. And so, yeah, I, I get the sense that, yeah, for it, especially with him, he's someone that's like, yeah, if you tell him, oh, we want to make a gay-themed horror movie, he's all for it. He's, he's going to, you know, want to you know, get as much out there for as many people and have as many voices as he can. And, it, and it's like, you know, going back to the whole thing, like he won't make one. He'll make like 12 in like the span of two or three years. And even like like the family friendly movies like A Talking Cat. Well, you can't just have a talking cat. You got to have a talking pony. And then there's like the Easter Bunny dog movie that he made. And then there's a Halloween dog movie. And it's just it's just kind of like, you know, most guys would probably spend two weeks to make one of those movies and he takes two weeks and makes two of those movies. And there you go. They're on, uh, you know, I can't say video store shelves, but they're, they're a thumbnail on your television now. And, you know, uh, you know, the kids have, have to watch something too. And I, I think it's funny to see like my daughter was watching the, the dog on Christmas that Jim Winorski did. And I'm just like biting my lip. I'm like, I'm like, wow, you know, you're watching this while I'm in the other room watching Not of This Earth. So it's it was kind of like one of those moments where you're like, oh, well, well wait till you get older. You can see some of the other movies he's done. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I try to do now because, you know, again, my, my wife and I like some of these Christmas movies and I like to try to find the ones that that, you know, the guys like Wynorski, um, uh, Fred Olin Ray and Dakota have done because you, you see sometimes you see little touches of their style. Um, I know watching um, the Christmas in Palm Springs one, uh, my wife was noticing because they Part of the story with that one is that uh, it's got Michelle Trachtenberg from uh, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in it. And then, you know, your, your standard fare of supporting cast people like uh, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. Um, but um, she is interested in this guy who has an orphanage, of course. What, what else would he have? You know, he'd be working at an orphanage. <laughs> and so one of the kids looked very much like something you'd see out of a 1950s uh, you know, a Christmas movie. Um, I mean, the way his hair was, I think even his outfit, I think he even had overalls on or something like that. And so my wife remarked on, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a touch that, that Fred Olin Ray would put in a movie like this is he would, he would want to bring something from his, you know, his movie watching past when he was growing up, which I always love seeing that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, even um, when you're watching like, like uh, something like, you know, one of his many bikini movies, Right. Or, um, you know, or, or going back to even like his, uh, like the, the action movies, like, uh, uh, that he did with like Ross Hagen and, uh, David Carradine, there's, there's a cutting style, there's a shooting style and you can't really disguise that. That's just how they make the movie. You know, they say style is a uh, failed technique and like any, you know, any movie of Fred Olin Ray's, you know you're watching a Fred Olin Ray just from just the way it's framed. And I mean, I've seen countless of them. So, I, you know, it's, it's he's one of those guys, quantity over quality. And, you know, I'll, I'll watch anything he made with Nursky, Dakota. You know, I'm, you know I, I have no qualms about sitting through any of their films. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I, I think it, 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 it's one of those things I think that, that has made it kind of cool or it, more interesting in recent years um, because, you know, the Christmas movie used to be, you know, the, the, the Lifetime or Hallmark Christmas movie, it used to be, you know, get some B-movie actor or B-TV actor that we haven't seen in a long time, ship them up to Canada, um, add in a chiseled Canadian actor to be the the, the the, the lead, you know, the, the co-lead or whatever, and go from there. And now with, with, with these guys down here, they can shoot in L.A. on a budget that, that you, you don't need to be in Canada necessarily to shoot those movies. And, and so it's, it's added an, a new element to these films that I really like. But then, like you said, you know, we're, we're used to watching their, their, their B-movie stuff from the 90s and how that's, that's shot. And it is always kind of funny to see those, those angles and all of that. Um, those kind of those camera angles and whatnot and, and see it being done with like a Christmas romance or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, these guys, you know, they're, they're, that's what exploitation filmmakers do. Yeah. They, they grind them out. They, they find a niche that needs to be exploited and they, they do that. And, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm always wistful for their 80s stuff, even like their, you know, uh, the stuff that Ray and Winersky was doing uh, 10 years ago with, you know, the uh, Busty Cops movies and yeah. stuff like that. Like, I, but I, I appreciate the fact that they're still out there making a movie. It might not be something that I would, you know, watch, but like around Christmas, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll watch a Fred Olin Ray Christmas movie or a David Dakota movie uh, for, uh, the Christmas audience, I'll, I'll definitely do that. 
yeah, yeah. It's it's always a, it, it 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 is. It's a really it's it's an interesting niche with these act with these directors, and I think it just was one of those things where it never crossed my mind that of course if I were you know these studios that need you know like Hallmark or whatever, and I needed to pump these out, uh, you know it just makes absolute sense that if they're willing to keep the uh, the, the the talent or like the, the the actors with their clothes on, you know, or keep everybody well clothed, then <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. Let's let's have them make the movies. And I mean. You know, it, it is the law of diminishing returns. You know, you you get the Lifetime movie with a you know somebody that made some Quantum Leap episodes or you know something in the '90s that you know they can churn them out in 14 days. Well, we we need them quicker than that. We need a guy that was in the B movie trenches in the '80s that can churn them out in five days. And it's like you can see because even I mean the Santa Summer House. I mean it it almost. I like I've seen better cinematography in a porn. Right. <laughs> it's a high def haze to it, and it's just. But you know what? It's 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 content. It's it's a it, it's out there. We watched it, uh, so I I give you know I, I I try not to punch down, especially when guys are out there in the trenches making these movies like that. And but it's it, it's it's definitely you're not gonna. You, you know, Hallmark Channel, I can't see showing that unless they were desperate, but it would definitely be like on your Vizio television or on Prime where I saw it. Um, so it's, you know, it, it it's out there. It's out in the world. We're discussing it. So it, it's 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 something. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that's funny about this one, you mentioned it being on Prime, is that this movie comes up on Prime if you're searching holiday films. But it also comes up on Prime if you're like, oh, what, what Gary Daniels films do they have on here, or what what Cynthia Rothrock movies do they have on here? And so then, you know, I think there is that that curiosity factor if you're an action fan, like, what what's going on here? I, I've I've seen mm-hmm. however many of Rothrock's films. What is she doing in this? I gotta see this. And um, so it, it has a, a, a sort of an added benefit by having all those stars in it. There is that curiosity factor, but it but halfway through, like you know, after the the croquet scene and after the you know just the gratuitous family strife and everything, and halfway through, you know, when they're trying to get their wishes, I, I was kind of remaking the movie in my head, like, okay, what if we had the same cast, the same premise, but terrorists took over Santa Summer House right. or ninjas or something? It just there was at a point, like I said, I appreciate the fact that these guys can make this movie without punching somebody for ninety minutes. But <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it, if ever a movie needed some ninjas or terrorists, uh, it was this one because. But you know, I, I, I again, I, I respect the uh, you know the fact that you know it's a, it's a family film. Uh, you know, kids of all ages will will probably. Can't say they'll enjoy it, but they might be forced to watch it at some point. Uh, but yeah, I like I said, I just started resorting to remaking it in my head. I'm like, wow, Gary Daniels doesn't roundhouse somebody. I, I might might have to take a break on this one. Yeah, well, well, tell me too. Did you notice uh, this was maybe something that just I noticed, but like like Rothrock did a good job of not walking around like she's someone who could who could kick somebody in the face at a moment's notice but it felt like the way that Bernhard and and Daniels walked around the way they had like their arms kind of at their side and the way that they 
they kind of moved. There was a sense that they could round, they, they were ready to roundhouse somebody. Like they, they can't turn that part of them off, I guess, of the, you know, just being ready to get into a fighting stance at a moment's notice. Well, especially Bernhardt, because, I mean, his character is more of like, you know, the obnoxious braggart kind of guy. Right. Um, yeah, I can see him. But there was a moment, like, I think, I think it's a good, like, 10, 15 minutes before Daniels even takes his sunglasses off. I, like, <laughs> it, it kind of added to the whole fact, like, did they just film him uh, arriving from the hotel and just put it in the movie? Because he he doesn't seem to kind of switch on into a character until about 20 minutes in. Because, I mean, you know, a lot of that's he's just standing around listening to exposition about the, the house and Nana and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, it... It, it, it seemed like Bernhardt really was kind of itching to kind of do a split or uh, something. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, he gets that one moment where he's in the hot tub, so it's the only time he really gets to take his his shirt off at all. Uh, but beyond that, like, yeah, he, you know, he he could not like he was supposed to be some kind of rocket scientist character, but he could not turn off like the Euro, the European like jet setter kind of thing. Like, you know, he's wearing these like nicely, I, I would say almost tailored polos and linen pants. Like he just couldn't not be vacationing in Monaco, you know, as the guy from Switzerland at all in that film. And so then it's like, you know, he tries to be like this nerdy um, rocket scientist, which I'm not saying rocket scientists have to be nerdy, that they can't be these Europeans who, who vacation well in Monaco and, um, you know, uh, you know, look like they would be on the cover of, of, of GQ magazine or, in, you know, in a GQ cover spot or something like that. Um, but yeah, it, it was like impossible for him to, to, to not to turn that part of him off, you know. It, it was like for me, I was like almost like, man, I would love to be vacationing with Bernhard. It seems like he lives it up. Like he's got like the best of everything. Um, and it was not, you know, he didn't seem. He was trying to be a jerk the whole time, but it, it, instead, it was more like, you know, like I don't know, like yeah, like you know, like a Bond villain or something like that. Yeah, seriously. I I think if they upped it a little bit more, he could have been like an Elon Musk kind of, you right. know, kind of like billionaire kind of guy with the right uh backstory or whatever but they just opted for the the traditional kind of route with that yeah i mean you wonder with a script like this you wonder if this was this wasn't written with the idea in mind that it was going to be for uh action stars in it um and then of course i think you know dakota rounds out the cast with people he knew like um jessica morris who plays constance in there mm-hmm. the, the older sister she's a, a definite mainstay she's done i don't know how many dakota films um and so and i think i think robert mitchum i think i'm sorry Martin, not robert mitchum i get my getting my mitchums mixed up here christopher mitchum um he i think has also done his share of dakota films so it's you know he rounded up the cast with people that he knew could do these movies but i wonder if this this was meant to be like a more standard film and it wasn't meant to have action stars in it i mean it's quite possible i you know like i said like those uh actors they all kind of also in addition to uh being in the movies they also kind of do like uh martial arts demonstrations conventions and stuff. And I have to wonder if they, you know, if they found out they were all going to be kind of in the same area at the same time to just get them into this Christmas movie. And um, like I said, I can't fault them for, you know, wanting to at least stretch their acting muscles a little bit. And uh, it, I'm sure the the money wasn't much, but I'm sure it was. It looked like it was fairly easy money. So uh, you know, I. Yeah, especially some of those guys have like hundreds of movies on their uh, IMDb listing. So when you're cruising by, it would be easy to miss that one. 
Uh, so, it, it, but then again, like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out who, who would be in the movie, uh, knowing that Dakota's usual stable. I like, I could see like maybe Eric Roberts as Santa. I mean, I would, <laughs> I would pay to see that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What if he'd be in the movie too much as Santa, right? Like Christopher Mitchum was in the movie too much for it to be, uh, an Eric Roberts role. I think it's like, it was, that's was true too. too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I know what you mean there because, I mean, I mean, actually, what's, what's interesting is Gary Daniels ended up doing another Dakota film, uh, The Wrong Child, which, of course, had uh, Vivica A. Fox, who's, who's you know, done her share of those. And that was another one where he, you know, he didn't, you know, wasn't a kickboxer in any way. Um, and that's kind of a funny one because, you know, spoiler alert, the, the, the wrong child, the kid that they, they you know, that bring in or whatever, um, he kills Daniels. And you're just like, you're seeing him kill Daniels in a way that, like, in however many movies, Daniels easily disarmed somebody who attacked him that way and, and just, like, you know, knocked them out with one blow. Uh, and so, you know, I think from Daniels' standpoint, I think one of the problems with him is that, and maybe Rothrock, you could say the same thing in Bernhard as well, that because so many bigger names have fallen into the DTV realm. I think they got squeezed out a little bit, especially like in the late 2000s into the early 2010s. And I wonder if there, there was this mindset of we need to show that we can do other things so that perhaps we get more offers and it's not just action movies um, that, that maybe there's something else there for us. Yeah, that's a good point too. And I mean, another, uh, thing is you know when when daniels uh was in the expendables you know not very much albeit but you know it, that still uh kind of bumped his name up a little bit you saw him he got an, a nice boost from that and i think you know that was kind of around the you know the same time where you know on a back of a dvd or you know even on the little uh synopsis on your television it says the expendables gary daniels or whatever so it's it um and, and yeah bernhardt start started in uh I, I think he was one in one of the born movies or he he's had like roles as like the henchman or the bodyguard who gets like punched whenever somebody uh okay. enters the, the the room or whatever so they could slap one of those you know top-notch uh hollywood credits to his name and you think you're you're getting this kind of bigger name cast than you really are, which to us, I mean, we watched it because it has those guys in it. Right. Uh, but like, you know, I think to to the average viewer, you know, somebody they're hoping maybe somebody will think uh, Gary Daniels is actually, uh, you know, a, a, another of the Expendables that they could recognize. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a really great point. I don't know how the algorithms work, but, I mean, it's possible, too, that even watching something like uh, The Expendables or something like that, that, that this might get picked up in the algorithms, then, uh, and and it, it, it may uh, perpetuate it that way in streaming services. I don't, I don't know if in 2012 if they were thinking so much like that, because, you know, Netflix's streaming was just starting to take off, and Prime uh, streaming was just starting to take off at that time. Uh, but, you know, by the same token, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, I think 2012. I don't know if the video store was still quite at the level that it. You know, I think it was. It was really starting to fade at that point. And it really had moved to like Redbox and streaming and those kinds of things. But I think, yeah, just seeing those names on the cover, I think, uh, yeah, I think 
for, for somebody who, who, who was a fan of action, probably saw those names and thought, hey, you know, let's, let's give it a try and see what this is. But I agree with you that I think maybe, you know, some ninjas coming in to, to, to maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, create, create, like, I mean, that, 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 um, mansion would be great for a diehard scenario as well. I mean, I don't know what kind of damage they can do to it. I don't know how they can mitigate that if they, they blow anything up or something like that, but it, it, it was pretty ripe for a nice diehard scenario as well. Yeah. That, that half car, uh, sofa, uh, you know, easily somebody could use that as a, a shield, uh, the pool, they could, uh, electrocute somebody in that, uh, you know, ninjas jumping, rappelling down the wall of the columns. Uh, definitely a lot of possibilities there. Yeah. Now, now this brings up another topic. I'm um, thinking about the idea of it because I think one of the problems with possibly making it into a, uh, a hostage situation, I guess you would, you would have to eliminate the fact that Chris Mitchum is Santa because based on, on the powers that Santa is given in this film, the fact that he can, uh, you know, change the weather. Um, obviously, he's omnipresent. You know, he can be in all in many places at the same time. Um, he's he's pretty much omnipotent. It's almost like if you were going to make a Marvel movie, Santa would be quite a villain that, that the heroes would have to try to uh, <laughs> defeat. Uh, so in that case, you know, that it would be very easy, even if there were ninjas with with special ninja abilities. Uh, with Santa's abilities in this film, it seems like he could snap his fingers and they would just disappear. Well, un- unless they were uh, elf ninjas that knew all of Santa's tricks and, uh, you know, played the Santa playbook. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, think, I think we could work around that. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think, what, you know, one scenario is, of course, he could get stuck in the chimney. Yes. Uh, like Die Hard, he could be uh, crawling through the chimney and get stuck and then needs, you know, all the B-movie stars to... To come save him. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you bring up an interesting scenario because I used to watch a cartoon with my nephew called The Regular Show. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that one on Nickel. I think it was on it's on Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network. I think Cartoon Network. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with. It. I haven't seen too many episodes, but yeah. So they did a Christmas episode where there was a, a, an elf that went rogue and he stole this. Like, I guess there's a, the, the way that Santa gave presents was he had a box that could give people whatever they wanted. And this rogue elf stole the box. And so Santa calls on the, 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 the crew from the regular show um, to go and, and, and get that. I mean, imagine a scenario like that where like, you know, Chris Mitchum is Santa and he's like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe Eric Roberts is the rogue elf. I mean, somebody like that. And it's like, he calls in, these this crew of action stars you know and just you know they all have like different backgrounds and like special forces and things like that and he's like he's like you know all right listen you know i i need you guys to get this this thing back whatever it is that you know that my rogue uh elf took from from the north pole um you know i can't do it myself for whatever reason you know maybe because santa magic doesn't work on the elves or something like that you know i'm sure you can come up with any kind of rule to make it so that they have to get it and um yeah i mean the only problem is of course you know in that point you it's no longer a um, a diehard scenario. So maybe Santa is in a room of the of the, um, the 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 mansion that they never use anywhere else in the film. So it's like they go in to meet Santa in this room, whatever it is. They design it to look like a a boardroom or something like that. And then and then we see our our characters sort of climbing the the wall of the mansion in the middle of the night in like you know the kind of the black special ops gear and so you could still have the film just take place in the mansion because i think that's probably a problem right we can't we can't use a different set for this yeah i mean it, it would be too expensive to have fake snow in a david dakota movie uh 
but I, I, I think I think we're getting warmer here. I, I think basically it would be kind of like a dirty dozen scenario where he gets all the guys from the naughty list, right. and it's like if you want, you know, you know, uh, presents this year, you're gonna go and you know, you know, kill my elf. And I, I just I got the title, the Xmas Spendables. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that would be amazing. There we go. I love the idea of the naughty list, too. Like, kind of like, you know, they, they do the whole thing, you know, like in the Dirty Dozen where the, the person, like, runs down all the horrible things they've done. So, like, maybe this is where Jessica Morris, who's the um, the the Dakota mainstay, maybe that's her job as she's, like, Santa's, you know, right-hand person. And she's running down the list, you know, while they're sitting there and, on and this table. And checking it twice. Right, exactly, 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 exactly. And it's like they each have their special character names, and it's like, okay, you know, they go to you know Daniel Bernhardt's character. Yeah, you know, you blew up this thing, and you did this and that this year, you know, and you killed this many people, you know. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess I did Santa or something like that. And it's like, they each, you know, they each get each get their rap sheets or something like that. I I, I think this this could work. I mean. I'd watch it. <laughs> yeah, I think this would be fantastic. I mean, I mean, that's one of the funny things is that there's always that debate, right, about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. And I think the big reason why people try to poo-poo it as a Die Hard movie, they say it's because, well, it just takes place at Christmas, but it doesn't have anything else Christmas in it, which isn't true, right? If there's like a Christmas party, um, you know, there's this idea of the, that time of year just before Christmas where, I mean, it was kind of like a a play on consumerism as well and, and the way Christmas is um, celebrated or was celebrated, you know, in the eighties, but also, you know, kind of the same way now. But I think the reason why people don't want to call it a Christmas movie is because it's, a, it's got, you know, action and killing and all that kind of stuff in it. And so um, I feel like that kind of a genre kind of spinning off of Die Hard of like Christmas action movies, I think would be fantastic. Well, I mean, I mean, my argument for it being a, a Christmas movie is it, it brings the family together. I mean, all every Christmas movie, the family is always apart or, you know, too busy working or, you know, there's a divorce or there's there's something that, that keeps the family from being a, a, a complete family unit. And we have that in the beginning. They're fighting, you know, and and at the end, you know, they embrace and, you know, the Christmas music plays triumphantly at the end. I mean, it is a Christmas movie. It's. You know, he, he, he might not be uh, Scrooge, but he learns, you know, through the, uh, the, the, the terrorist plot that, you know, uh, to be a better husband, to be, you know, a better, you, you know, uh, it, it's a Christmas movie. I, I, I don't see where there's a gray area there. Yeah, I agree with you there. I, I mean, I'm someone who's kind of more like I accept more um you know, possibilities for, you know, like, like, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to say, yeah, I see where you're coming from on a Christmas movie than to be like, no, that's not a Christmas movie. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I like that, that take on it, that fact that, you, you know, because that's like ultimately what these Christmas movies do, right? I mean, even Santa's Summer House, you've got, um, you know, the, the, the family where you've got, you know, Gary Daniels and his wife is played by Kathy Long. And then the son is um, uh, a new actor who, you know, hadn't been in anything before this, according to the film, at least. Um, 
and you know the the son is upset because the parents are working too much and you know it's kind of like they're thinking it's a working vacation but also the couple themselves do not really have the spark anymore i mean that's the, the whole croquet game the whole point of the croquet game is to show us that gary daniels is not a good husband because his um his one thing i forgot to mention is everybody has to get a secret santa gift for somebody else chris mitchum is santa sets it up so the whole cast um everybody gives themselves a, you know everybody draws a name and uh has to get a secret Santa gift for somebody. And so Gary Daniels draws his wife for the secret Santa, and he throws the croquet match, and that's supposed to be his gift for her because the, the bet was if the guys won the croquet match, they had they, whoever won the croquet match, the other one had to do the dishes. So essentially he was saying you didn't have to do the dishes. Um, and so, yeah, it's almost kind of the same thing as Die Hard. I mean, in, in Die Hard, they were divorced, right? I think the, the couple, um, he was... Like, like she had moved out to L.A. and he was still a cop in New York and he was. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of the same thing here where it's like this this family, you know, in, in Santa's summer house and, and other people too, kind of learn the magic of Christmas. But you're right. It's, it's the same idea with Die Hard. They just go about it in a completely different way that I think for some people, they, they don't want to. They have this idea of what a Christmas movie is supposed to be, and they, they when they see something that goes about it differently, it, it hurts their sensibilities, I guess. Right. Well, I mean, you know, you don't. It, it it doesn't have to be Santa in disguise bringing the the people together. It doesn't have to be uh, a a ghost of Christmas past to to show you the area of the ways. It it's about how you know the you know the holidays can be hell for a lot of people, yeah. and you know it it, it it's. At the end, it, it, it's reaffirming. You know, you, you go through some stuff at the holidays, and then you know it, somehow you know together you you, you kind of make it through. And you can even say the same for Lethal Weapon, but with uh, you know Riggs. Yeah, you know, if you take Riggs and Murtal as like you know kind of like like a a, a couple. Right. Not necessarily, you know, romantic couple, but like, you know, they're opposites attract. Yeah. They, you know, they, they don't, you know, you know, it's just like the whole Daniel Bernhardt scenario here with the girl and like, you know, they don't like each other, but they grow to respect one another at the end. And finally, they, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're together at the end. So, you know. And then there's Reindeer Games, which is just uh, that's that's a Christmas movie, and I won't hear no tell of it. That that that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, well, I, well, Reindeer like... Games usually gets lost in the conversation, but I I watch Reindeer Games every year uh, religiously, and you know it's a pretty good religion. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's funny because one of my coworkers brought up the, the the Lethal Weapon one. He said, you know, why is it that people consider Die Hard a, a Christmas movie, but they don't consider Lethal Weapon? And again, I'm someone. You know, they always joke about like, are you a small hall or big hall person for like the Hall of Fames? You know, and I'm I'm still a small hall person when it comes to sports Hall of Fames. I don't want, you know, I only want the best of the best players in there. But when it comes to Christmas movies, I I'm willing to accept a lot of different types of movies for Christmas movies because I think Christmas itself is such a huge uh, thing in our country. I don't even know. I mean, holiday I guess is the best term to describe it because it is you know everybody gets the time off from work and everything. But it is such a massive mover. Uh, of everything in this country that I think just having a small slim definition of what makes a Christmas movie doesn't do justice to what Christmas means to so many different people in so many different ways. I mean, people celebrate in so many different ways. They have different rituals, different um, traditions. 
And I think, like you said, like, yeah, reindeer games, movies like that. I, I think it's, you know, it, 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 I don't, there's no need for people to be limiting or, or gatekeeping what a Christmas movie is because, I mean, you know, again, I mean, I would take the, you know, either, any of those three that you mentioned over what we just watched, which was still a <laughs> Christmas movie. And it was, you know, it had its moments, but, you know, any of those were really great movies. And they still kind of did, like you said, they, they kind of had still some of that message of bringing the family together, which is, you know, ultimately what Christmas movies do. And I mean, you you uh, bring up a good point that you know what, the holidays means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and the movies mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I mean, people that you know, I'm kind of like a little too old to kind of like be into Home Alone. That kind of was like after my time, but like I can't begrudge anybody that you know puts on their ugly sweater. Uh, gets the family on the couch and watches it every year. I don't begrudge anybody for watching any genre of movie because, you know, people are going to watch what they're going to watch. And if it brings them joy, then that's great. And Christmas movie is a genre of, you know, unto itself. So, Hey man, you know, I, I can't begrudge, a you know, uh, anyone that, that uh, sits and wraps presents or makes, pies and they got the hallmark channel on on 24 7 and they're watching chris that's that's what what they like more power to them and you know i think uh, some of that gets lost especially like you know sometimes in the horror community there's a lot of like gatekeeping like you said and you know about sequels and remakes and stuff and you know it's it's just watch what you want to watch. There's so much stuff out there that you, you'll you'll never watch it all anyway. So why even complain about a movie you might not even watch? Right, right. Well, you know, that's one thing I think that's interesting when you when you talk about that because I think the action community is a little less you know gatekeeping. Like even yes. if an action movie doesn't is you know like a, an action movie doesn't have to be The Expendables. It doesn't have to be Terminator for people to be like, yeah, that was a really good movie. I mean, you look at Scott Adkins and Jesse V. Johnson, all the stuff they're doing, but it doesn't even have to be at that level for people to find in, enjoyment out of it. I think we in that sort of in that, that action fan community, I think I think that may be why we're more forgiving of other genres as well. Like we're we're more willing to watch a sci-fi movie or a horror movie that isn't like this absolute like stunner and has like the absolute best effects or something. Because you can kind of see the enjoyment out of it in, in other ways. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. Like you talked about with the gatekeeping aspect of it, that people just have this idea of like what a movie has to be and they won't accept anything else. Whereas we're kind of in that mode of like, you know, if you like it, you like it and you don't, you don't. And, and Hey, that that's, you know, that's good enough. I mean, I will, I will gatekeep the Dakota movies though, because they need to, <laughs> they need to be held at that level of alter, uh, you know, filmmaking, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're, you know, even something, you know, like a, a PM movie uh, in the nineties, like you, you, there's a couple people that would watch one or two and say, okay, well that's enough. And then there are guys like you and me where we notice these things that kind of happen from film to film, like them reusing a car chase or, uh, you know, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs being in like, all the you know that this whole series that at first you're like are these connected are these sequels are they you know and we kind of dig a little deeper and we start you know appreciating them for you know the you know what they are and 
you know, a, a lot of times, you know, and you know, this is true for Santa's summer home. It, it's a product. It's meant to be out there so people can, can consume it. And a lot of times, a lot of these filmmakers, they knock it all, they, they knock it off and they go on to the next one. And, you know, every, when you're dealing with that kind of mentality, the junk kind of piles up a little bit. But, I mean, we, we keep looking for pearls and that, yeah. that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, and I think too, like you know, if you're an action fan, if you're into, you know, especially the careers of, of of you know some of the people that are in this film, or like you said, you're 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 David Dakota fan from before, or if it, if it's one of the other directors like Riddle and Ray or Wynorski, there there are little things that you can glean from it or or have fun with in in it um, that I, I think helps as well. Um, like I like I wouldn't say Santa Summer Home is something that everybody should just get out right now and go onto Prime and just like you're gonna love it and it's it's an hour and a half of of, of just pure entertainment. Um, but you know I know like some people you know people got a kick out of it when I reviewed The Wrong Child with um with, with Gary Daniels in it because they were just really curious like I didn't even know he did this movie and this is really fascinating that you know that he was in this and I think sometimes that's what happens with some of these these stars where you 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 get so far down their their filmography and you've seen so many of their films that it's interesting to try out some of these these ones that are a little bit off the beaten path and and again with someone like a Dakota to kind of see how does he handle the Christmas film genre after doing some of these films that that he's done before yeah i mean the you know with uh daniels and uh guys like bernhardt i mean they're they're just as prolific now as they were you know in the 90s and it i mean you know as well as i do you know guys like dolph and uh uh stallone and Van Damme and even Seagal, like they keep just churning them out. And Bruce Willis, I mean, like I, I think there was like three new Bruce Willis movies on Prime when I was looking for this one. I was like, I, you know, I, I got to hunker down and, and start watching these because I'm falling behind. And yeah. it, that's that's the risk you run when you're a fan like we are because it's just there's so much of it now that it, it's you, you just keep juggling. Uh, back and forth between your your, your favorite uh, action stars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing that, that, that COVID has maybe helped in that sense is that we were able to catch up because I think it was the first year, and I don't know how long, that there was no Dolph Lundgren movie or no Steven Seagal movie released. Um, mm -hmm. I think if you go back from like 2019 and before, I mean, I think Seagal was like, he, he, Seagal has slowed down a little bit anyway, uh, but he was pumping out like, you know, two or three years. Dolph was doing the same thing. And um, yeah, they, this is the first year. And I don't know how long that either, neither of them have a film out this year. And, you know, I mean, who knows, maybe next year, like, I think, um, I think Dolph has maybe started to, to film Castle Falls again that he was doing with Adkins. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it gives us a chance to catch up on, on the ones that we may have missed with, with some of them because yeah, they were, they, they, they pumped them out. They, they can, you know, and, and it seems like they all work with directors and, 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 and line producers and, and, and whatnot that they know, um, that know what they want. And, um, you know, I mean, like, like Seagal usually works with, with, um, with uh, Keone Waxman, um, you know, Dolph a lot of times works with them. I think it's Giorgio Serafini, I think his name mm -hmm. is, um. Yeah, I mean, you know, names that, you know, people that it's almost like they're co-directors in a sense where they're talking about what they want or what they need out of the movie. And um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's it's amazing how so many of them are still, and I think it's one of the problems, I think it's one of the things for guys like 
like or you know um, stars like like Daniels and and Bernhard and and Rothrock is that it's hard for them to get movies when Seagal and 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 Van Damme are still I'm sorry, Seagal and, and, and Dolphin and, and them, and now even like Stallone is doing direct video stuff, and Bruce Willis, it, they're they're taking up so much space in, in there in the ecosystem that they have to um, find movies wherever they can get them. Yeah, I mean it's you know like you said, Daniels is doing the Lifetime movies and and this and um, and I think Bernhardt has has a good uh, like uh, backup where he could be a. a, a I think he's uh, been Keanu Reeves' stunt double. He's he's been mm-hmm. a couple of high profile stunt doubles for a few movies. So I think I think they're not exactly hurting, yeah. but I, yeah, it, there is a point where they're not going to be able to do the spin kicks and everything anymore. And so they they do need to start venturing out into uh, other possibilities. Yeah, yeah, and I think. You know, I think with Dan or with uh, with Lundgren, um, I I saw he was on. Um, Scott Adkins has a a show on YouTube where he interviews, uh, you know, all the different martial arts. And I'm like way behind on it. People keep telling me like, oh, you know, I, I'll, I'll like review somebody's movie and they'll say, hey, did you see the the interview he did with Adkins? And I was like, no, I, I haven't seen it yet. But um, he was talking to to uh, uh, Lundgren, and I guess Lundgren hurt his hip at some point, and. He just can't do the kicks like he used to, he said. And it's kind of like, you know, he's at that point age-wise where, I, I mean, I think he's, he's, he's a little over 60 at this point. And, you know, it's like when they get an injury at that point, it's harder for it to heal. Uh, and, and so I think that makes it even harder, too, when they're doing these movies where um, it's probably easier for them to get injured because they're, they're not as spry and, and getting out of the way of things. But then when they do get injured, it lingers a lot longer, too. Right. And, you know, when they're making three to four movies a year it's like do you want to lose a year to heal or do you want to still grind out three or four movies and just kind of be in a limited capacity yeah yeah and i think that's another thing you were talking about where this movie comes in i think really well for the stars that were in it is that you know other than the croquet scene there's really nothing happening in this movie that takes a toll on on these these actors um, it's such a toll so, on me right exactly so so you know they don't have to worry about possibly hurting themselves and again you know noticing that brace that that that, that rothrock had um in in some of the scenes um and i mean i know i've heard that you know i think she tore uh, a ligament in Hong Kong before she did a movie there and it's like you know a lot of these actors it, it's you know it's the kind of thing where like you know if it was, if it was a, you know a, a player in a, you know, in a sports league if they had that that injury we, we wouldn't hear for them for months you know they'd be out for a long time but with a lot of these actors it's like okay I gotta do the movie still um, I think sometimes they would even hide the injury and, and just want to be because they, they wouldn't want to get recast or you know get uh, uh, cut from the film um, there's no you know there's no uh, collective bargaining agreement with with actors for that kind of thing it's like when you get injured you're out and especially in Hong right. Kong um, so she probably did even more damage to it cause by acting through it I, I can't remember what movie that was um, I don't know if it was the Magic Crystal or um, 24 Hours a Minute one of those it was one she did with Richard Norton but um, she said okay. yeah if you watch it you'll notice she doesn't do certain kicks in the film yeah I I haven't seen too many of her Hong Kong movies, but I, I do remember uh, Writing Wrongs was with yeah. uh, Yun Biao. That, that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think she said he's the her favorite person to, to act opposite. Um, but, I mean, obviously she did a lot of great ones with Norton as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that one thing I could tell though with her in this movie is it didn't feel like the other two were, um, you know, like anybody else in the film who had that background. Where it seemed like for her, she was like leaning into this and really just wanted to act and show that she could act and be be Mrs. Claus, uh, which was I think a lot of fun to to kind of see her in that kind of role. Yeah, I mean, she she did a, a good job. She's always had like that bubbly kind of personality, which is yeah. you know a good fit for the character, and even. You know, she had good chemistry with Chris Mitchum, too. And it was like, well, you know, maybe uh, with a bit better circumstances, this could have been, you know, a, a, a good Christmas movie. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, the, the rest of the, the film, uh, <clears throat> Croquet, uh, kind, of, <laughs> kind of left us hanging. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there there were a lot of different things, I think, that, that, you know, were kind of like the cliches in the movie that almost felt like Dakota. I mean, they're probably in the script and probably the script writers put them in because they felt like they had to put them in. And then it felt like Dakota was covering them in this this almost perfunctory way that like when you're watching them, you're just like it, it almost feels like it's not even developing properly. And so then as it moves from stage to stage in the film, you're it's almost like, wait a second, how do we get from here to here? But it's like we we know we're supposed to be there, um, like like with Bernhard and um, Jessica Morris's character, where there's that sort of will they won't the won't they, you know, sexual tension kind of thing. Um, it was so disjointed throughout the film that, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you can tell she really likes you, you know, and, and Bernard's really, she likes me. And it's like, we couldn't even tell that she liked her, but we knew <laughs> that she was supposed to like him because that's how those movies work. Um, but they just didn't play that kind of thing out well. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you have the first 10 minutes of a, uh, a cargo van driving around aimlessly and then people milling about the uh, the foyer of a of a house, and then a ten minute croquet game, and then all of a sudden they're like, "We got to put a plot in here at some point." So about like twenty minutes before it's all over, there's the whole thing with the the letters and the wishes and the it, it like you said it it it's like at that point in the movie, okay, well something should happen now. Let's have something happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it is funny that it, it, you mentioned about the letters. Um, and so this is a bit of a plot point in the film where um, the, the, the characters all discover that this that Chris Mitchum, in their mind, thinks he's Santa Claus. Right. So some of the characters maybe think he could still be Santa Claus. Others really think this whole thing's ridiculous, uh, which makes sense. That's, that's probably how we'd all feel. Um, and so he has to prove to them that he's Santa Claus. And the funny thing is that, I mean, he created uh, a, a, a weather event to waylay their their van so the van got lost and came up to this to santa's summer house um he also was able to change their bookings so that they'd get double booked in that time so he obviously has some very extreme magical powers i mean obviously you know you know burying the lead the fact that he's omnipresent as well and he can be in multiple houses at once at, at, uh, to be able to drop off presents um you'd think he could maybe just snap his fingers and 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 show them that he's santa claus um that would have been all it took but i guess the letters were what he had to use um he felt like he needed to do it that way uh but yeah i i i was um i kind of thought like the the letter aspect i don't i don't know if that would have done it for me but i guess you know i mean i, I don't know about you but i, I whenever i wrote letters to santa um, they, you know, that was it. Like they, you know, I, who knows what my parents did, but they probably threw them out or something. Once they, they once they, they, they uh, transcribed the actual things that I wanted and crossed off the ones that they weren't going to get. Well, it, it's still funny that you know, in this day and age, that you know, 
people getting lost and being welcomed into a stranger's home for not one but like multiple days right. like that's like a, something that happened in like movies in the 30s and 40s right. and even in the 70s like with the horror movies it was still kind of pushing it but you're like, okay but like in 2012 watching it in 2020 and you know like does that still happen that people just like well come on in you know we got plenty of room i'm like uh it, it just seemed, seemed like a, a touch from like another era right yeah i mean i mean really it's a very great horror movie plot right where it's like <laughs> you know these people are in this house and then you know well you know i mean you know stephen king would write this perfectly um and and yeah, and, and I mean, I did get a touch of that when when they start to have their doubts about who, you know, they start to realize like, oh, this guy thinks he's Santa Claus. Um, you know, if, if that was in real life, you know, if you went to somebody's mansion to stay with them and suddenly you discover that he thinks he's Santa Claus. Now it's like, oh, man, what's going to happen next? Is he going to try to force everybody to dress up like elves and, and act out some crazy you know, Christmas scene or something before he starts, you know, picking people off. Um, and I mean, that could be the movie, right? That maybe, you know, they don't use their martial arts so much, but maybe that's what it is, is that Chris Mitchum is, you know, he's, he's some kind of, you know, twisted psychopath that, that thinks he's Santa Claus and he and, and Rothrock have trapped these people here. Um, and maybe Rothrock's an unwitting partner, who knows, but, um, you know, that, that's what, you know, they have to, maybe there's mercenaries that, that show up on the grounds and keep everybody st- locked in. There's Stockholm syndrome. Then there's North Pole syndrome. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean that could be another way to have done this as a diehard in in the mansion kind of thing, where it's, um, you know, this crazy guy has has everybody trapped in here, and you know, how do you get people out, and how do you, you know, and um, and and that of course would have, would have made the relationship thing between Daniel Bernhardt and Jessica Morris's character make more sense, right? Because, you know, those kind of characters in that kind of environment, they always, you know become a couple as long as they all survive the film i think the the younger sister would be an easy one to pick off um you know she's she's an extraneous character you could just dump her really quickly um i don't know if we start to kill off anybody that's the other problem too i guess you'd have to add people to this cast that can be killed off easily i think um the van driver would have to go unfortunately oh yeah yeah there's no just going back to the resort no peace he'd get picked off first perhaps but you know what it is is they go to try to escape and they find him in the van dead um, you know, like they tap oh, on the window, yeah. like we got to get out of here. And his, he, his, his head moves over and his eyes are like oh, open and he hits his head on the glass on the window, of the door or something like that. And he's got like garland wrapped around his throat. And... <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe that's the other version of this, the alternate version that Dakota should have made. You know, maybe, you know, I mean, when you consider how quickly he makes these, you wonder if that's possible to make two movies at the same time. Um, I know of directors that have done that where they'll, you know, create the same movie. You know, at the you know two movies at once with the same cast, mm-hmm. and and just you know, I mean, I mean, it's part of the B movie thing. When you're working on a budget like that, you find ways to make movies any way you can. I mean, that would have been an interesting concept to have made two movies at the same time. One of them sort of more like this this murder type thing where the characters that you know the, the stars that we're used to get to use some of their their uh, martial arts abilities. Yeah, I mean, they they used to do the uh, kind of like the the hot version of of the movies where they would do the the, the cable inserts or whatever and uh so it, it's not too far away i mean even like when they did the uh the mexican version of dracula you know they had the the crews working day and night and they had uh that was a little bit different situation but it, the 
they still made two movies in the time that, that most people make one. So I, I think it would have been definitely doable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been funny. I mean, I think for, 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 you know, stars like this, they like to have multiple, I mean, I mean, Jessica Morris, again, you know, she's used to working on that David Dakota schedule and she probably has worked in that kind of capacity where she's done two movies in the same week with him or something like that. Uh, and I feel like with, with, with Rothrock and Daniels, especially having done movies in Hong Kong, I, I feel like, you know, action, you know, B movie action stars, they must be used to working on those tight schedules as well. Probably better than maybe somebody who's coming from the big screen ranks, who's then moving down. They're probably not as used to that kind of a, of a tense schedule. Yeah, I mean, they're probably memorizing lines for the movie that they're making uh, next week while they're on, in the trailer for this one, if there is a trailer. Um, so it, you know, it, you know, there, there are some. Uh, I know, like in television, a lot if they're on a, a series or whatever, they'll spend the week filming the series and then spend the weekend filming the movie. Yeah. So uh, that they're working on. So it's it's conceivable that when they weren't being used, they were on a, another set somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you wonder again with this idea that you know, and I don't know if Olin Ray and um and and Wynorski do this as well, but I I'm pretty sure Dakota does all of these movies in the L.A. area, and I wonder if that's a selling point for these stars, the fact that they probably can just go home after shooting for the day, that they don't even have to be necessarily in a trailer, um, they can just you know, they, they, they don't have to be put up anywhere. Um, you know, craft services is there, but they don't, they can actually have dinner at home, um, depending on how long they shoot for, of course. I mean, if they're shooting late into the night, that that's different, but I wonder if that's a selling point for them that they can just, you know, they, they're not on location so far. I mean, Malibu, I imagine that's, you know, just shoot down the Pacific coast highway back to wherever their houses are. And I mean, the, uh, it might not even be in the budget for accommodations. So they might have to stay at home. Right. Well, that, well, that might be part of it is like, you know, when they're casting, when the, the casting director has to look for people that uh, are, are willing to, to, to go back home and uh, after the shooting for the day. And so, yeah, that's a, that's that's part of the process. Maybe I mean, you wonder with these casting directors if they have a whole different thing. I mean, I heard that, that with Woody Allen, it's just like his casting director will just call people and just be like, yeah, we're, we're not going to pay you anything, but you get to work with Woody Allen. And that's how he gets people in his films. Um, I, I wonder if it's different with these where it's like, yeah, you're going to be working with David Dakota. You're going to be shooting on a, on a rough schedule, but um, you get, you, you get to go back to your house in LA after, as opposed to, you know, you know, selling it that way, as opposed to, yeah, we've got lush accommodations for you or something like that. And, and I mean, that that's, you know, I I don't think any of those guys are strangers to kind of roughing it in, in that aspect. And I'm sure when they work, it's 14, maybe 16 hour days. And, you know, somebody was probably crashing in the uh, the half car sofa in the living room while they were filming out. You know, other people were filming out in the uh, Chris Kringle's uh, private room. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know Rothrock went um, on on her YouTube channel. She'll interview people that she's worked with, or she'll just like talk about what happened when she made movies. And she was talking with Richard Norton, and they were talking about doing films in Hong Kong and how like they would be doing fourteen hour days. And how I guess there was something that Richard Norton was able to pull. I think it was for the Magic Crystal Boat. It was for something like that where he he had his wife there with him, 
when they were shooting, but he he pulled something with the director so that he wouldn't be doing those long days. I don't know if he was just like, I won't do your movie if you don't if you make me do these long. I, I can't remember what it was, but he came up with some way to get out of doing those long days. But yeah, you you, you make a great point because I think they're all used to that um, those kinds of schedules. And I mean, that's that's you know, like you said, you know, there won't. There, there won't be any money in it for you, but you're in a movie. I mean, that's how, like, a lot of the, you know, they, they rope a lot of the, the younger uh, people in there. And I guess they keep the the uh, older uh, names, you know. And like I said, you know, they've all worked on movies together. So, I mean, it's just probably an excuse to hang out and, you know, just kind of chit-chat, catch up before they all go to their next project. Yeah, I mean, this film's cast, I mean, it's literally like what? Um, I'm hit on IMDb here. I think it's literally nine people in the film total, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, again, from a, a, from a price, st- you know, from a cost standpoint, I mean, to only have nine people in the movie um, is, uh, you know, obviously that means you probably can pay Daniels and Rothrock a little bit more to get them on board, and then the other actors—they're just happy to be in a movie. I think like the the younger sister, for example, um, the the van driver, um, the son was his first movie. I think for them, they they're willing to take a little less to be in a movie like this. So you know, maybe 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 Daniels. I mean, I don't know what the number is. I'm thinking you know maybe fifty, sixty grand. I don't know um, yeah. what, what that that number is, but it it it's probably one of those things where yeah i mean I, I think probably everything about this movie for the people involved was like just work except except for the fact that the film itself didn't exactly work well they they had to save money for the uh snowman uh christmas card looking transition scenes where it's like it'll wipe from scene to scene and play like public domain christmas music and like like wish the the one scene and then into the next scene they had to pay for that somehow. Yeah, those were great. The corner, the um, the the Kurosawa George Lucas screen wipes <laughs> that were used with uh, with Christmas decorations, like cartoon looking Christmas decorations, which was fantastic. I mean, because at first they 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 used them pretty regularly, and then they kind of forgot about them by the end. I was like, I was I was hoping that one of those. Uh, transition wipes would come through during the croquet scene but no no such luck <laughs> i know we needed to be saved by one of those those transition <laughs> wipes that's what we were, we were hoping for um now looking at the cast i completely forgot about one other aspect of this uh, david Dakota is credited as mary crawford in this film uh, he's not even listed as david Dakota, so um that's one thing to keep in mind for people if you look this up that yes it says it's directed by mary crawford but it's actually directed by david Dakota. And he did that too in his uh, uh, full moon movies. He would, if he was doing like the Skinamax movies, I think he went by Ellen Cabot. Yes. Um, I think I don't know. I, I guess maybe if you're using a, a, a pseudonym and you you, you put a, a woman's name instead of a man's, I, I guess it's maybe would soften the blow if it's not good. I don't know what the thinking is there, yeah. but it. <laughs> You know, or they, you know, if you watch and you, you picture Mary Crawford being this like nice little old lady, like you know, who just wants to make a nice, happy little Christmas movie. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I and and I, I never knew it, but uh, I, I read somewhere with Winorski and uh, Ray where they would when they had their pseudonyms like Jay Andrews and uh, Fred Raymond, I think was. Uh, Fertile and Ray's, um, 
they only did that because then the market is saturated with movies directed by Jim Wynorski. So they had, you know, if you're at the video store, you know, this is like the early 2000s, you're at the video store, every other title in the horror section has Jim Wynorski's name. You're like, whoa, wait a second. So they actually, the only, it wasn't like he was ashamed of those movies. It was just too much product with your names on it, like a red flag goes up. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm seeing what, what the, the funny thing is. I'm looking at his his uh, 2000s output, and almost everything is Nicholas Medina. So it's almost like even though he was uh, using the pseudonym to sort of not not uh, saturate the market, he was saturating it himself. I think uh, Nicholas Medina, uh, Fred Olin Ray as Nicholas Medina had, had five uh, four movies in 06 or something like that. So and they were um, probably all with bikini in the title they, they were yes they literally were uh, bikini girls from the lost planet ghost in a teeny bikini the bikini escort company um bikini chain game actually bikini chain game was 2005 and then the only one that he did that wasn't that was that was credited to himself was the legend of william tell <laughs> okay yeah i, I should <laughs> I check that, I bet that a, one. yeah i yeah. bet that one is a um oh it's actually an ed begley jr movie um, oh, wow. I was thinking it might have Tim Abel in it because he, it seems like he would do a lot of these kind of movies with Tim Abel, but it looks like a family movie of some sort. Yeah, well, he he would like occasionally do like a, a random like Western, like he, yeah. uh, I think it was a, was it American Outlaws with uh, Peter Fonda? It would so yes. randomly, and like I know he did like the Hatfield and McCoys uh, kind of ripoff. Uh, so, I mean, and he can do Westerns, he can do any genre. I, and I think, you know, when he's allowed to kind of riff on, on a genre that he's not used to, I think he kind of jumps at that chance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to his credit, bringing up the, the, um, the American outlaws, the Jesse James one, I, I gave that movie a real hard time. Cause I, it felt like it was sort of like celebrating the, the Confederacy. And, uh, it, it didn't really mention some of the aspects of the Confederacy, like slavery as, as bad things. Um, and so I, I really killed that movie. And then I think I, I went and did an, um, another one of his. I think the one that he did with Wynorski, um, one, one that he did with Wynorski together. And, um, and to his credit, he just said, hey, you know, thanks for, for the review on the Wynorski, which told me he read the other review where I killed his movie. <laughs> and uh, he didn't, you know, get in the comment section and be like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what this movie, you know, all that kind of stuff. He was just like, you know thank me for the other one, which in a way is a, is a more passive aggressive, but a, I think a better approach if, if somebody kills your movie is to, if they like the next one, you know, thank them for liking the next one. Yeah. The, uh, well, the way those guys work, there probably wasn't time to change the script, right? That's yeah. the script. You got to shoot it and whatever objections you have. But then again, I mean, the, you know, I, I'm sure that the, uh, the, I, I hate to say it, but the attended audience for that movie is probably like a MAGA hat wearing somebody right, right. who would probably, you know, not even think twice about, right. about that kind of uh, political kind of uh, statement. Uh, but I, yeah, it, it, it's funny too because a lot of the, the like, they have uh, the same kind of stable of screenwriters a lot of times. And, uh, so I, I, I don't know if there was an objection anywhere down the line, but I'm sure like if it wasn't ironed out, it was strictly due to budget or scheduling. Yeah, and that's something that I've learned a lot of. Um, I think, you know, 
in in hearing, you know, because sometimes, you know, these directors will talk about the process or, you know, what it's like, or, or sometimes you watch commentaries and you hear about it a little bit and you get a better sense of where all of this stuff comes from. And then like, you know, like, you know, suddenly, you know, the croquet scene, which was like, you know, like, like you said, it was rock climbing for us and we needed a, a screen wipe to, to save us from it. But you get a sense of like, okay, why would a director do something like that in a movie? And you realize it's, he probably had no choice that like, yeah, the movie came in under the time that he, he was, you know, when they edited it out and realized, Oh, you know, this movie is 10 minutes too short. Well, where can we add that to the film now that our, our stars are all across the world doing other films or whatever? Um, you know, how do, how do we add, Oh, well, we've got all this croquet footage and let's just keep, keep uh, recycling it and adding it in like that. And, um, you know, of course, for us, we watch it and we're like, oh, this is horrible. Like, when are you going to, you know, uh, save a, you know, when are you going to, you know, when is the, the film going to fade out and move on to the next scene? Um, but that's, you know, those are the things that they had to do to make those movies work. And another tell was the uh, the beginning with the uh, van driver yeah. where he's narrating and you think he's going to be like the main character. He's just the guy that drops him off. Right. And there's this long scene of the van like slowly going up the road and you're like, why is this even in the movie? And you realize that, oh, well, the first thing they shot was them coming out of the van and they had no scenes of them in the van to set up their characters. Right. So, I mean, that that was like five or six minutes right there of yeah. extra screen time that you can get if, if you have a mandated 90 minute running time. Yeah, and there was also a, 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 the opening credit sequence was long, if I remember too. It was like um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they were showing the ocean or something, but it was like a long period of just like a name, you know, thirty seconds. I think it was like four minutes almost of just yeah. opening credits as well. <laughs> and then they they do the thing at the end of the uh, yeah. where they bring everybody back and show a little quick montage of the scenes that you know that they were in, and that that runs. And then I I think the uh, the titles were running super slow, and half the time, you know, they're, they're fake names in there anyway, because they probably only had six or seven guys, uh, men in the crew. Yeah. If that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, because, yeah, you see that a lot with the Fred Olin Ray movies, too, right, where they, when they, they wrap up the movie, you know, the movie ends, and before they go into the, the full credits, you see... The, the, the people that were in the film. And this one made a little bit more sense because there were only nine people in the film. So it was, you know, you, you couldn't leave anybody out. But I've always been fascinated by what makes them decide who should be in that montage at the end and who gets left out because sometimes it'll be someone who had like one scene and they show them there and like, oh, so and so. And it's like, really? I don't even remember that person being in the movie. And you're telling me that, you know, who, who they were in the credits. So, so I always get a kick out of that. Well, they do that a lot in, like, the bikini movies, and, like, if you notice, all those bikini movies are 81 minutes. Right. And it's, like, that's, like, the magic number, I think. And, you know, half of them kind of peter out at 72 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, like you said, like, every blessed, you know, person gets a a little, and it'll even be dialogue scenes. Well, it'll just be a quick little, you know, three-second montage it's like you know they'll replay a whole scene and if that doesn't work they'll, they'll do a blooper reel and then yes i do yeah it, it, you know you're in trouble if the blooper reel isn't running concurrent with the credits right right because yes, when exactly. you see that you know it's just time to turn it off it's probably still got 20 minutes left on it you know if it, I, i'm more forgiving if the blooper reel is running over the credits or you know and but when they just showed the blooper reel to show that, first of all, if 
Jackie Chan or Burt Reynolds isn't in the blooper reel, you probably shouldn't have a blooper reel. But that, that that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, it, what, what it feels like is, remember in, in school, right, you know, that the, the teacher, professor, whoever would assign a paper and it would have a length, uh, a required length that it needed to oh, be. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, what are the ways that I can stretch this out? Like, okay, first off, maybe I can change the font. Um, I can make the spacing <laughs> a little bit heavier. And then also, you know, then it's like also like, okay, I, I, I used one word to explain this. Can I explain the same thing in five words? Can I use like a, a huge extended analogy? You know, like, um, yeah, like, can I, can I put in a quote, make a whole block quote or something like that? It, it almost feels like they're trying to, to extend the paper so they can reach the word limit um, for the teacher with these movies sometimes. Oh yeah, I, I mean that's a good analogy because I, I mean I'm kind of guilty of it too because sometimes I know my reviews I I kind of know where I want to kind of come in mm-hmm. at word word wise and if I start using like and then in the meantime like yeah that like just those little kind of stock phrases just kind of thrown in there it's like yeah I'm I'm trying to get this thing up to like 400 words and I, I'm having having trouble doing so. That's a, yeah. I know with with mine, it's like the, I always have that that eight paragraph format, and so like the first paragraph is the intro, the second one's the the synopsis, and the last one is the wrap up. And a lot of times, I'll have trouble with that that seventh one. That's like the one right before the wrap up, and so it's always something that has nothing to do with the movie. A lot of times, or like some like really like tangential thing, like you know, like oh, I think I think there was one where um. You know, like I'd see like a Miami Dolphins hat, and I'd be like, "Oh, you know, this room, this movie took place at this time. Dan Marino was still the quarterback of the Dolphins at that time, or something." And it has nothing to do with the film. And then it's like gives me like the segue too to be like, "Okay, if we're talking about this, it's time to wrap up this review." Um, but it's always like that paragraph really, you know, has no reason to be there except for me to pad out the review. So I've got the the eight paragraphs that I'm looking for. But I'm sure Roger Ebert had to do that too. I'm sure he had the his column length because sometimes he will go on tangents. Yeah. about movies and everything. Did, did he even watch the movie <laughs> so it's you know just come by it you know any way any way you can you know yes for sure um now, now one thing i wanted to talk about um before we, we wrap up in terms of christmas movies is um i think the last time uh, last year when you were on around this time uh we talked about your favorite christmas movie of all time uh which is elves i don't know if that one's still your your, your favorite uh, yeah, I mean we're, I mean because of COVID, we're not going to have the, the typical uh, party where we have friends over to watch it. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm definitely uh, on the 23rd. Uh, it's kind of the tradition is to watch uh, Elves, and it, it, it's funny because like I actually met my wife on the 23rd of December, so <laughs> that I got to make sure like we go to lunch or something. We do something together before that. And then it's like, well, we're going to watch elves. And she usually taps out before, you know, the, the finale of that. So, uh, but it, it, it's one of those things where it's, it's a tradition and I look forward to it. And, uh, I still, you know, I, we, we've been watching it since probably 92, wow. 93 per, perhaps. Um, and every year, you know, we went from renting it, and then we went to rent it one year. They said, you're the only person who's rented this. <laughs> Do you want to just buy it? We we're like, sure. So, yeah, we, we took it home. And I, even though I've, I've seen it probably close to 30 times, I, I still pick out kind of new things in the background. Mm-hmm. I'm still, you know, it, it's just like a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, it, it has 
what has got to be Dan Haggerty's best performance of all time. Uh, and he's so earnest. I mean, you if if you took his scenes out of context, you you would you would think that you were watching a regular Christmas movie because he has these really kind of beautifully acted, uh, you know, monologues, and he has the, the sad puppy dog eyes and. You know, and he'll be delivering it, and then it's well. Tell me about the Nazi elves, <laughs> and it totally, you know, whatever illusion it. I mean, it just shattered. So, uh, yeah, uh, and, and I would recommend that one to 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 any anyone out there who thinks that they've seen it all, because it it's the only movie I can think of that rips off both Chinatown and Dawn of the Dead. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, it, it, one thing I should mention: if you go to Dan Haggerty's IMDb page, it's actually in his little brief bio at the, at, you know, underneath his his picture. It's the second film that he's he's listed for. Uh, he was an actor known for. They list Big Stand from 2007 first, and then Elves second. Um, and so I think that's really interesting that that's the movie that they list here for that. But my my favorite scene, I think, of Elves because I, I did watch it after you mentioned it last year. I had to, I had to check it out. Um, I love when the kids are partying in the in the mall after it closes, and Dan Haggerty is still hanging out there because he's now he's the Santa Claus or whatever. And I think he he was planning on like relaxing there or something after it closed, and he's like telling them like, okay, you know, you guys can do so as long as you don't break things here. And I just loved Dan Haggerty as the responsible adult amongst these kids. You know, like uh, it just was like the funniest idea that he's just like, okay, kids, go ahead, do it. you know, like like they're looking at him like he's going to get us in trouble if we don't. Uh, if, if he tells on us or whatever like that, or he could tell us to leave or something. Um, that idea and the way he did it too, he was like, okay, you kids, you know, whatever. Uh, was just, <laughs> I got a kick out of that part. And I mean, it's, it, it's that permissive paternal father figure that <laughs> the main character has been missing all her life. So it, right. it totally fits. Like I said, I've seen this 30, 30 times. So I, I, I pick up on stuff like that where, you know, he kind of fills this void in her life you know, for that short amount of time that they're together where, you know, the, you know, the, the grandfather slapping her, the, the, the mother's uh, grounding her, you know, uh, the, the kids, uh, her, her brother just wants to see her tits. You know, she has a bad home life. She needs that kind of direction in, in, in her life. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, it's, that's a good point too. I mean, they, they definitely like, you know, when you think of like the Cinderella with the, um, the evil stepsisters uh, trope or, 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 or um, you know, film device, they take that up like a, a bunch of notches where she's just like living in the absolute worst environment that she, you know, like the mother is horrible. The, the grandfather's even worse. Yeah. Like everything about that place is as, as like, it's like they couldn't make it bad enough. It's like, it seems like they would be like, okay, we're going to make this, you know, this and you know what, that's not bad enough. Let's add something else to what the mom does. And, you know, I don't think she's bad enough. Let's let, let's have her do this instead. And then on top of all this, then you've got the, you know, the, the elves, which are like a Nazi experiment that are, you know, out there, you know, it's like a killing device. So not only does she have this horrible home life, but then we've got a kill, a, a killer elf that's on the loose as well. And it's funny too. There's a whole sequence that, and we la- we laugh at it now. But I, I I know probably people who are watching it for the first time. The the duct tape sequence will probably be for a lot of people the croquet sequence right. uh, from Santa's Summer House because there's this, this whole 
subplot about duct taping the door. And the duct, <laughs> there's door in the duct tape, and then the girl comes. There's no duct tape on the door. Then he comes back. He puts duct tape on the door. Then the guys can't get in the party because there's no on the door. And it's like, it's like, was this film like you know sponsored by the duct tape corporation? <laughs> exactly. I mean, just the idea of like a mall. I guess it's like in like some kind of urban environment and the fact that like the back door is like this like i mean the, the idea of this mall is, is just you know i mean the, like the lock for the back door it, it seems like i'm surprised people weren't just breaking in and robbing the mall uh, well it was it, it was a it was a, a big department store it was right. Gollum's department store so it was a throwback to that old you know timey not quite quite mall aspect of it yeah but it was almost kind of like a a, a miracle on 34th street vibe to it uh but then again you know the scenes where they're you know hanging out uh in in the uh the store definitely have like a a night of the comic kind of vibe to it they're trying on all the clothes and uh playing dress up and stuff like that yeah yeah i mean it's a good point when you think about because like you know 1989 i think you, you still had some of those i mean i remember in 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 my hometown there was still a department store in the downtown uh, ports with New Hampshire area that was it was on its way out like they had there was a mall um, in you know the, the neighboring town and they had just built a bigger mall in that same area that was going to run the smaller mall out of business and it also killed off you know some of those those kind of downtown department stores that uh, yeah at that time you still had that kind of thing that's a good point I didn't even think of that that you know a few years later, you really could you 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 would really be a throwback to have a, a downtown department store, especially in a town that's not like a big city, um, because the malls at that time were starting to run all of those kind of businesses out. Which is a good point too, because that's probably how they got to film in there, because it was yeah. probably on its way out. Yeah. They probably were able to film there very cheaply. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a great point. Yeah, that that you know that the the that place was probably not doing the kind of business. And so they probably could have, they, they could use the infusion of cash to have the, um, the, 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 the movie pay to be in there in the middle of the night. Cause it even has like, you know, the, the donut shop in there, uh, you know, the coffee stop, uh, shop in there. So, uh, you know, it, think back, you gotta think back how, how long ago it was when, uh, stores like that had a lunch counter. Yeah. And I mean, for a lot of today's generation, they would say, "What? What? What?" what? <laughs> and like, I, I mean, there's still stores like Boscoff's that have like chocolates or like, you know, I mean, but like even like there are stores that had, uh, you know, like a whole diner within the store, so you could go get something to eat while you're shopping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like Kmart, you know, Kmart had the the diner. I remember mm-hmm. getting grilled cheese in Kmart. Um, as a kid, and of course, you you know, I don't remember um, at what point they closed that whole thing down. Of course, there was also, a, you, you could smoke in that area as well, so you were eating a grilled cheese while, like, older ladies were smoking and probably, like, waiting for the next blue light special announcement to go off, and, uh, and, and, and you know, at that time, all that stuff was considered legitimate. Like, you, you know, you, you didn't think twice about that, and now you're right. Like, I think if you were to show that kind of thing to kids and say, you know, you know, here, yeah, here's this place, Kmart. It was, you know, a huge, you know, shopping, you know, uh, destination where a lot of people went. But also, you could eat there and smoke inside there. Um, it was like a, all of that would be a, a lot for them to take, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I see. I, 
you know, I'm an old soul anyway, so I, I take that stuff for, for granted. Like, you know, I see stuff, but, you know, um, you know, it, could you do elves just that way, you know, nowadays, you know, with the, I, I guess you could, I guess you could use like a Walmart or a place like that. But, you know, even, even then, like the concept of like, uh, you know, kind of sneaking in to like a, you know, a mall or a, a store after hours, it kind of like very kind of feels like a very eighties or nineties kind of dream. Like, like I know, like career opportunities was kind of like that, and like the uh, you know, like the whole kind of like Toys R Us uh, sweepstakes where you could get like a, a shopping cart and go through and just take whatever you wanted. I, I don't think people or like kids today really have that kind of uh, dream about like oh let's let's stay in a store after hours. I don't I don't think that plays to a new generation. No, and you make a great point. And I think, too, like you think, you know, the logistics of it with a Walmart or something like that, like if you're going to do the equivalent to a Walmart, um, you know, like a fictional equivalent, you know, one, I mean, there's cameras, you know, like multiple cameras on every aisle hanging from the ceiling. Um, so I guess it would have to be a friend who works the security at night that can like put in a tape of, you know, the store like looking normal, I guess, so that, it, you know, somebody else who went back and saw it wouldn't think that they were, um, you know, that people were, 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 were hanging out there or something. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many aspects of this film that, you know, and I'm sure this film took liberties with the truth a little bit, obviously, because you've got, you know, elves as a Nazi, a killer elves as a Nazi experiment. Um, so that in and of itself is, you know, uh, you know we're, we're not stretching credulity, you know, obviously, you know, it's kind of like um, that, that joke um, about, you know, like, yeah, the Gilligan's Island episode with the Harlem Globetrotters, and uh, um, you know, one of them sprains an ankle, and Gilligan goes into play, and someone's like, "Oh yeah, like Gillen, Gilligan would be allowed to play." Like everybody, everything else in that show was was believable, but the fact <laughs> that Gilligan was going to be playing basketball with the Harlem Globetrotters was too much. Um, yeah, um, you know, I, I'm I'm saying that the, the the department store would stretch credulity when you've got uh, uh, <laughs> killer elves in the film. So I guess you could probably do whatever you wanted to um, from that point in terms of the cameras and all of that. But but you make a great point that. You know, I think like these places like Walmart, uh, there's an element to them. I mean, Target maybe is a little bit nicer and a little bit more fun. So I guess you could maybe dress up a Target and that might be a place that kids would want to hang out. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you know, I I think kids don't see those stores the way they used to. Now it's like maybe more like Amazon wish lists and things like that. Yeah, I mean, unless they they went with a, uh, a Starbucks or something, you know, all the lattes they can drink or something, you know, it, it, that just aspect of the culture, I I just don't think kind of translates now. I mean, and even with the aspect of security, like you said, like, you know, uh, security cameras everywhere, you know, in 1989, all you needed was a roll of duct tape and, you know, you were, you were good to go. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, stores like that would have like one or two cameras and they would be really obvious where they were. And I mean, you know, obviously we've seen Point Break. We saw how easy it was for Patrick Swayze and his gang to take out the, the <laughs> one or two cameras in a bank. Um, and so, you know, department stores didn't really I mean, th- those were kind of new things at that time. And I mean, yes, you know, closed circuit cameras have been around for a while, but for for companies to be able to do them affordably, that was starting to be a new thing where 
companies would do that. It was like, you've got to get a camera. Whereas, you know, I mean, you know, at that time, you know, things like shoplifting and things like that, it was more about did the person on the store, on the floor, catch somebody stealing as opposed to, oh, we can see it in the camera. We can see what they're doing there. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had those places had like store detectives. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think nowadays they just have like a security guard or one cop that's making a little bit extra money, you know, like, so the whole concept of security is a lot different, I think now. So it, you know, but then again, who knows the, the technology for uh, killer mutant Nazi elves (laughs) could advance equally so. Right. Well, and one thing to mention, too, is, I mean, it could be a situation where maybe people are working third shift because Walmart stays open 24 hours during the holiday season. So that could be what it is. Instead of a party, it's more like people are partying at the Walmart while it's open, you know, like, oh, we don't get a lot of customers in here. Let's, you know, crack open a drink or something like that and like do it on the sly. And then, of course, too, you can have that 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 cliche of the the security camera footage. So it like shows the elf walking around like you know you see from the security camera you see the elf walking and then you go to like real camera footage of the elf walking so um, it's a way I guess they save money with with cinematography. Well, not that that matters any because it was clearly walking around the floor <laughs> during peak business hours and nobody noticed it. Right. <laughs> right. It's like well, it, it, it's like that whole long sequence too. It's got the blurry <laughs> elf vision. He's going through the aisles and I I, I mean. Yeah, you know, they say he has magical powers, so easily hidden, can't be seen. So maybe that that uh, you can attribute it to that, but I they didn't really convey that uh, filmmaking wise. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of maybe having the elf out there in a place like a Walmart in regular business hours, and people are just so obsessed with getting their shopping done and and their shopping lists that like nobody notices like maybe like there's like a cabbage patch doll equivalent that uh everybody's after at that time or a tickle me elmo kind of thing and like they're so obsessed with getting that that they don't notice the killer elf that's walking around near them well yeah that that would be the perfect metaphor for you know consumerism and greed i guess for you know you're too busy looking at your shopping list when you don't notice that the uh the Nazi elf that's about to bring about the the Antichrist and the end of the world as we know it is is lurking behind you. Right, exactly. That's we're we're we're, we're too much of a consumer culture, and the elf is there to to show us the error of our ways. And I mean, you know, and and that's the the whole thing too. I mean, if anybody wants to argue that uh, Elf is not a Christmas movie, I mean, it it's it clearly takes place on Christmas, and you know. But 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 one twist is is that the the family is torn apart at the end uh, and they, they're not brought together. So, I mean I mean there's a whole lot made about it being anti-Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the, the they're sisters of anti-Christmas. So it actually kind of deconstructs the you know the the standard uh, structure of a uh, Christmas movie because at the beginning they they are together and then. You know, the, the dark secrets are revealed, and then by the end, it's just her alone in, in the woods. And, uh, you know, with the haunting final memorable image, uh, memorable uh, final image that I won't spoil. Right. But, uh, yeah, you make a great point, because it's almost like some families are too toxic that 
Christmas magic shouldn't bring them together, right? Some families are so <laughs> toxic that we need Christmas magic to split them apart. For for a woman in in her case, it's better for her to be apart from her family than opposed than as opposed to having to deal. And that's always a classic part. You know, it's one of the things about Christmas, right? Is that um, people feel like they have to spend time with their 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 relatives. But if your relatives are as toxic as the one she had, um, you know, we, we we should be celebrating somebody who doesn't have to spend time with them. Which is why, you know, uh, Dan Haggerty made that perfect father figure right. slash Father Christmas slash Santa Claus slash detective uh, right. slash action hero. Yeah. Uh, and there's even the whole scene where he, you know, he does like the, the detective work uh, and, you know, finding out the mystical symbols. And then that great moment where he barges in on the professor during uh, Christmas Eve uh, dinner and demands to know about the connection between the Nazis and the elves and the professor has to say this long-winded speech in front of the kids who are just, I don't know whose kids they were, but they were perfect. They just kind of look at it like just, a, they're kind of like the audience surrogate at that point. You know, they're just like mouth agape, wide eyes while the guy's going on about haploid sperm cells and, you know, Nazis and master races and all this stuff. And it's just, it, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I watch. I, I refuse to call them so bad. They're good movies. They're just. Yeah. It's a Mitch movie. It, if it's <laughs> about a, a Nazi killer elf, that's a Mitch movie. I'll watch it. Yeah, I, I like that term, a Mitch movie. Cause I, I think you're right. Like we always use that so bad, it's good term. But I think it, it sometimes there's just there, there's so many things happening in a movie that it's just hard not. You know, it, it, it's it's so hard not to have fun with it. I think. Absolutely. I mean, and and bad. I mean. Bad's too narrow, uh, especially for someone who is, you know, like like you and me, who, who's familiar with the director's filmography or certain actor's career. We can kind of like, you know, overlook some of the, the shortcomings of the movie and yeah. kind of focus on why we keep coming back to their movies again and again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this one's a fun one. I believe it's available on YouTube uh, if people want to check it out. Uh, I, I, I think it's on there. I think that's how I caught it last year. It may be able to stream too on like Tubi or one of those uh, services. Yeah, I, I think right now the only place you can see it is YouTube because I think there's a rights something with the rights is up in the air. I know Vinegar Syndrome. I think they wanted to to put it out, but the fact that it was uh, they only deal with film elements now, and I think it was filmed on film but edited on video, so oh, that right. kind of uh, that's why it kind of has that weird, hazy, something's not quite about this movie look about it because it was kind of ran through a processor before it was edited. Mm -hmm. So, but that's kind of what gives it its charm too. I think it just has like this like off-putting kind of film on everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, because it's it's an uh, uh, Action International Pictures, um, and mm -hmm. so they it's it, it says it had a theatrical release through them as well as being. Um, released through them um, on VHS. They were the first uh, video to, to put it out. Uh, so that makes sense. I mean, you know, AIP did all kinds of things in trying to get movies out. So, um, yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I can't imagine that being a, a situation there. And, I mean, which is a shame because I feel like nowadays when they bring out a DVD, it, the, the lack of discovery for someone who's been collecting since DVDs have been have been available i mean it get that that 
gets narrower and narrower because it seems like the same couple movies are always being re-released on DVD and there's so much out there on video that hasn't been properly given even forget about Blu-ray just a DVD release yeah so I think I, I think we don't need another Evil Dead release on on DVD we don't need you know it's just there's there's all these movies that they're great movies but they just keep going to that same well again and again yeah i totally agree i mean i mean man killers um another uh action international pictures from like i think the year before else i think it came out in 88 um maybe it's maybe it's a little earlier than 88 but but that one has a blu-ray release so if man killers has a blu-ray which which we were talking about a dirty dozen possibility that was Mm -hmm. another dirty dozen remake but um yeah, if that's got a Blu-ray, I think Elves definitely should have one. I, I, I hope maybe that, that'll be our Christmas miracle this year. <laughs> yes, exactly. Perfect. Well, well, Mitch, as, as we wrap up here, um, first, um, can, can, uh, tell people, where, where can they find you? Oh, on, uh, you can look for me on Twitter. It's twitter.com uh, slash the video vacuum. And um, I'm on Blogspot, uh, www.thevideovacuum.blogspot.com. And I've also uh, released a, a few uh, books collecting some of my uh, scribblings and nonsense uh, reviews and, uh, you know, reappraisals of everything bad to mediocre to something like Santa's Summer Home, uh, Santa's Summer House. Uh, my latest one is The Big Book of uh, The Bloody Book of Horror. Um, and that's available on Amazon. You just search uh, The Bloody Book of Horror or you just search other books for Mitch Lovell and all my other books, will uh, you'll be able to see that. Yeah, I have to say, because I, I got that one recently, um, Bloody Book of Horror. And one thing I think is really great about that book um, for people that are looking for presents, you know, uh, gifts this time of year. And it might be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be posting this, I think, um, on the 15th of December, which might fall in, in a tight window for a paperback with um, with on-demand publishing because um, it takes a, it takes some time for them to put those out but but even if it's a little late for someone I feel like you know especially from a gift standpoint you know people have these big horror film collections where they've got movies they've got books they've got you know Funko dolls and and, and all that kind of stuff I think your book fits perfectly in that kind of a category where it's like you know, you know, sure, someone can read it cover to cover, but it also works as like a reference guide where people can pick it up and read it. Um, you know, but also I really like the way the cover looks. So it's, it's really great, I think, for, you know, to ha- for someone to put into their collection as well. Uh, well, thank you. That means a lot. And um, I, it was kind of designed to be like that. Like I, I tried to give chapters that were broad, but kind of still gave you an idea of what to expect from either a genre or definite, uh, a definitive time period, uh, decade. And uh, they were fun to write because I, I kind of already know what I want to write about. And then, the, you know, there's a sense of discovery because nearly all of them uh, I saw when they were first time watches, except for a few that I threw in there because they were just movies I always wanted to review. And um, I, I like that that blend of, like you said, reference guide, but also like you could knock out a chapter uh, in you know maybe 15, 20 minutes and get a good I- idea of what that that genre or that that uh, director has to offer. And the uh, the artist of that, uh, it, his name's Pedro Mule, um, and he he does he's been doing my covers uh, for the past three or four books and. Um, 
he he's uh, available on uh, Facebook. And if anybody ever wants uh, needs a gr- good graphic designer, I mean, he he's as good as they come. Yeah, I thought that was really great. Cause, I mean, I you know I put my my novel out, and I just was like, I just want a black background with the white words for it. Um, and I might do that, you know, continually for the novel. But I think, but I I loved that cover, and I you know I I think you know people I think a lot of times we you know and I, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat, and, and maybe you as well, where you know the. You know, life is a very, you know, you know, our our lives are very busy right now. There's so much going on and it's hard to find time to read something. And I think that's why people shy away from books a little bit more than they do, you know, other things like DVDs and and movies and things like that. And that's why I always like try to, you know, with with a book like yours, it, it, it's, you know, yes, it's great as a book to read, but if you're someone who doesn't have time to read, but you've got, you know, a collection or, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's cheaper than adding a a, a Blu-ray to your collection, but it kind of has the same function. It's, it's, it's adding a piece to the collection, um, and so I, I always like a, a book like that that kind of has that 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 dual function where it can be you know read cover to cover, or you know if you don't have time to read something cover to cover, it still is a great piece for somebody to add to their horror collection. Well, I, I think the best compliment I ever got was I, I had somebody tell me he said, I, "I have your book in my bathroom because when when I go in there." Is it's just long enough for me to re- read a chapter? I'm like, well, that that's what it's designed for. It's like quick bites of, uh, you know, the broad strokes. And I'm, I mean, I've, I've considered doing kind of more in depth uh, books, but like it, like there's something about that, like four to eight movie reviews a chapter, and then boom, you're on to the next one. That that kind of just it kind of flows quicker too. Um, but also, I. Uh, you know, it, it's good for me, the writer, because then I don't get bored. I'm not like doing a deep dive into one particular subject. And you know, if you know, with horror, there's so many different facets, so many different eras, so many different stars, so many different directors that you can kind of cherry pick the best or worst from, and just kind of explore. And then, okay, go into the next one. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you did deep dives, I think it would still have that quality of being something that you know people can cuz you know even if it's in pieces you know in that sense i mean it, it it's still like i said it has that 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 reference guide feel to it that i i think is just yeah it it just works and i think for people who are hesitant to buy books i think you know a book like yours if you're again if you're you're adding things to a collection or something like that that's just that's exactly what this does i mean i think your other books fit as well for people that are action fans who are listening to this i know you you've got your uh, uh expendable guide to action which is another great one as well so so there are other genres too um for people that are are curious about your books and right now i'm i'm in the midst of editing uh, a new one which hopefully will be ready by the maybe this time next year, but I'm doing one of all Kung Fu movies. And again, that'll be like everything from the, the seventies, uh, Bruce Ploitation to today's modern DTV action, uh, Scott Atkins, uh, stuff like that. To, you know, the, the, the eighties junk, like the, the Godfrey Ho cut them up and paste them together movies. So, uh, so hopefully y'all can look forward to that. Uh, maybe this time next year, hopefully. Excellent. Yeah, I would love to check that out. So, yeah, I mean, when, when, when it, whenever it's ready, let, let us know, because I, I, that sounds like a really cool one to check out for sure. Yeah, like I said, I, I just kind of follow my, my passions. Like if I, I see a lot on my uh, To Be Watched pile or in my queue, I, you know, I, I see themes kind of forming where I see, okay, well, I've got three Bruce Willis movies. Maybe I can lump them together here. Maybe I can, and then, you know, like for right now, like on the site, 
Um, I'm kind of doing a deep dive into the works of Ron Orman, mm-hmm. who uh, was, you know, started out in the, the 50s doing like Lash LaRue, directing Lash LaRue uh, westerns. And then in the 60s, he started doing like straight up exploitation, like Please Don't Touch Me, which is about hypnotism curing a frigid wife. And then he, he made probably one of the definitive monster and stripper movies called The Monster and the Stripper. Uh, in the late 60s, which is kind of like a really Russ Meyer grindhouse type movie. And then he had two near-death experiences, gave himself over to Jesus, and then he made religious movies for the remainder of his life. And they're just as warped as anything that he made for the drive-in. So it's really fascinating to kind of just like do a deep dive like that. And that way, if it's on the site, people can kind of look at it at their leisure yeah, yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I, I try to get into some of those older movies as well, uh, in part because I think sometimes it gives you a better perspective on the directors that we were talking about today, like Dakota and in particular, Fred Olin Ray. I think he was, you know, or Wynorski. They were influenced by a lot of those kinds of movies. And um, and and it's it's always interesting to see things in those movies and be like, oh, that's where they got that from. You know, that that, that I recognize that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like, you know, uh, I think the body of work kind of speaks for themselves. When you look at a director who's got, like, maybe, I don't know how many Winersky and Ray are up to now. they got to be over 100. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could cherry-pick the best titles, and then they're so good that they leave you wanting more. So you just kind of keep going more, you know, into, like, the more kind of... uh, weirder offbeat offerings to the more kind of mainstream kind of bland offerings but they're all kind of there waiting for you yeah yeah for sure and with with the proliferation of different streaming sites now people can really at least get a taste for 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 some of these before they have to dig into like amazon and and have to try to you know find them in the used market um, you know, find find some of those in the used market they can they can really get a good sense of them early on by using you know the, the you know the different streaming sites are seeing what's on YouTube, uh, and so there's so much available for people to do, like kind of just dive in and, and check somebody out. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that we didn't really talk about, one of the facets that uh, Wernerski and Ray and even Dakota kind of worked in was the Sci-Fi Channel original, yeah. which was you know again made on a quick budget with you know kind of silly special effects. And a lot of those are on Tubi, and, you know, you can just go down, you know, search for Jim Wynorski, search for Fred Olin Ray, search for David Dakota. And like you said, you got seven or eight probably quality titles and probably maybe 15 to 20, but they're there. And they're, you know, like you said, you get you get hooked with a couple of the good ones and you just you're left wanting more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think it's probably a good way to, to, to leave us that I think, you know, we were, were, were kind of approaching this, this Santa summer house from that mindset of like these auteurs who, who did some really interesting movies are now doing, you know, Christmas films um, because that's what the market, I guess, is calling for. Um, but it, it is an interesting thing, you know, if you're hearing us talk about some of these directors and you've never really watched any of their films, it, it isn't, you know, it, if you're, especially if you're a B-movie fan and you really like films, especially from the 80s and 90s, um, you know, the, these guys really did some great stuff. There are really some really fun stuff for sure. 
and I mean, that's the key word, fun. I mean, they're, you know, they're clearly having fun or else they wouldn't be making 100 movies, you know, <laughs> sometimes three, four, five, seven movies a year. And they, I don't think, you know, they take themselves very seriously. I think they take what they do seriously, but they don't take themselves seriously. And they have fun and they hope that the audience has fun, too. And, you know, most of the time we do. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's a great place to leave it. Um, I'm just going to, you know, before we wrap up, I'm just going to let everybody know um, if, if you're not familiar already, dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. That's where, where we're at. And my, my novel, Chad and Accounting, is available on Amazon. Um, and again, with Mitch, um, the video vacuum, it's the videovacuum.blogspot.com, right? Correct. I think. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm not used to using typing it in. I'm used to just clicking on the link that I see uh, on, on Twitter or uh, or wherever. But yeah, that's perfect. And, and again, uh, Mitch's most recent book, Bloody Book of Horror, can be found on Amazon. Um, thank you again, Mitch, for coming on. This was another great conversation. Thank you, man. It was a blast. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, and, uh, and we will talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.